1: Hello and welcome to another episode of Something From The Cellar, our weekly look back into the white wine question time archive for some delightful vintages that have spent their due time aging beautifully and ready to be uncorked once again. We've got a very special few episodes coming out this September, otherwise known as Strictember. I know it's a terrible pun trying to merge Strictly with September, but let's face it, we all know it's the autumn when Strictly's back on our boxes. So to celebrate, we're featuring some Strictly legends over the next few weeks to get you excited for the return of the Ballroom Blitz. I'm calling these something from the Ballroom. And first up, well, he's been there from the get-go. He's one of the show's most beloved and yet most miserable judges. Yeah, Craig Revel Horwood. He's not that miserable, really. As we're about to hear, he's something of a hoot, actually. And he has a wealth of great stories that will have your jaws on the floor. I first spoke to him back in lockdown about how the show's changed since he joined it 20 years ago. And he reveals some lessons in tough love and his experience as a man going under the knife to better his own physical and mental health. Craig, I haven't seen you in so long. How are you and how has lockdown been?
2: Well, I am absolutely fabulous, of course. <laughs> I've had a really good time uh, having time at home. I, I think I spent two weeks. That's all I've ever had, really, in a run at home. And that's when I had my hip replacement. So I had to be at home. I didn't have a choice. And I uh, my life has been so busy up till now. It was, a, number one, a bit of a shock. But number two, I got a lot of things done that I haven't been able to do normally. You know, like normal things, like washing, ironing. <laughs> I know that sounds bizarre. Shut up. Cooking. You, you've no, not been no, doing washing. It. I have. I have. Have I've you absolutely really? learned, Well, I've learned, I've learned how to use the washing machine. So that's sort of cool. Because <laughs> I normally I normally send it all off to a company and then it all comes back all ironed and folded and beautiful and gardening i've loved that i have built a forest garden i put some t- a big bell tent up you know for guests and things like that i've really enjoyed it actually it's been wonderful but um it's given me also an opportunity to complete uh, the novel that i've written which comes out on the first of october dancers dreams on diamond street
1: Dancers' Dreams on Diamond
2: Street. Yeah, Dancers and Dreams on Diamond Street, darling. And it's a story or a tale about six people living in a house in Camden Town. Sort of a little bit like Tales of the City, but set in the 90s. Of course, it is based on a little bit of truth. (laughs) Because I used to live I was going to say,
1: hold on a second. You lived in Camden. Your house was a bit of a spaghetti junction
2: yeah that's exactly right but uh it's been fun because i could change all names and and places and events and make them you know really interesting and it was great sort of working with the characters you know there is one uh, that's like me who is a dancer turned choreographer <laughs> called danny <laughs> and, uh, it's their trials and tribulations and, yeah i'm called danny i'm young and beautiful that's in this quite book. <laughs> but that's the beauty about <laughs> fiction <laughs> that's the beauty about fiction you can sort of you know write how you really want to be in it <laughs> not the truth so um it's really great but i had a lot of stories actually left over from my three autobiographies and i didn't want to do another auto you know and i wanted to put stories in that i could that didn't have to be authorized <laughs> so it was a great it was great fun to do it really was and uh, looking forward to getting on to the next one now after this one so it's been busy, darling, and I've been recording. I've been recording a duet album with my friend Rietta, and it's a little bit of fancy, really. I've always it's one of my bucket list things to do because so I thought, well, I sang for many, many years, and not many people have heard me sing unless you've come to a panto, of course, and uh, or well, on been strictly, in a bar the only- with you. Or being in a bar with me, exactly. Yeah, after a few, you know, Savion Blancs, <laughs> seeing where are, uh, you know, wine friendly here. So uh, yeah, it was, I've loved it. The only thing is I've got to be very collect- uh, careful, you know, in lockdown and all this time at home, you know, not to abuse my wine cellar. That's the only thing. <laughs> Limit oneself, I say. Everything in moderation. So it's been really, really nice. I've enjoyed it. And it's been um, a wonderful experience, except for the fact that, you know, I really want to get back to work properly, obviously, you know, because I do miss the theatre because all my theatre shows were cancelled this year, like Strictly Ballroom. There was, you know, starring Kevin from Strictly. Uh, that had to go and be postponed until next year. Also my All Balls and Glitter tour. So at the moment, I'm rehearsing that during the day, learning the lines and stuff like that, because it's obviously two hours of stand-up comedy. Lockdown hasn't stopped me putting a pair of false eyelashes on, just so you know.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Is Lavish back?
2: Oh yeah, she's back with a vengeance, darling. (laughs) She's going to look younger, fitter and more fabulous than ever.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I was looking at pictures last night of you as Lavish. Oh, you are a good-looking woman, Craig. Well, thank you very
2: much. You know, it's uh, all smoke and mirrors, as you know. We've seen a lot of ladies go into makeup before they go on TV, haven't we, darling?
1: My God, yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. the and one thing I'm missing. <laughs> <laughs>
2: <don't, they're> <laughs> recognisable until they come out, and then, I guess the same for me. I don't have any apparent strong features, so I paint them in as a woman, and that seems to work. But I just love um, lavish the character, and I'm developing her. Sort of as we speak, I did an hour's rehearsal uh, just before this to get my Australian accent back because uh, that's going to be making an appearance. So uh, I've been practising that. Oh, Lavish that. is
0: back. I...
2: Yeah, Lavish is back. I did kill her off in Paris. You did. This character. And the last time she was ever seen was walking up towards, you know, the shot up the Champs-Elysees, darling, to the Arc de Triomphe. Uh, at six, six o'clock in the morning with heels in the hand and ripped stockings, <laughs> and then got on a bus to accidentally the wrong way to the Trocadero. So ended up at the, turret, the Eiffel Tower instead of where she was meant to live. <laughs> so I decided to kill her off, uh, but decided 30 years later actually to bring her back to life because she actually like Bobby just disappeared. Ewing. Yeah, well, she just sort of disappeared for 30 years, but she's come back. So it's going to be, I think the All Balls and Glitter Tour is going to be a lot of fun, actually. Looking forward to it. And we've rescheduled that to the um, February the 18th next year. So fingers crossed, darling.
1: Well, I will be there. I will be there. Because I, I just wanted to explain to listeners, you and I worked together for five years. I know. And you, were, you were my boss eventually.
2: i know you so well (laughs) Uh, i know i had a great time with you because you're you're one of those celebrities you know that is someone you can actually talk to like a proper person rather than you know you don't have this aura of don't touch me you know and i love that i love the fact that you're approachable i love the fact that you're down to worth, i love the fact that uh stardom hasn't gone to your head i love the fact that uh we're just sort of relatively normal backstage. You know, I mean, obviously we switch on for the cameras and for an audience and you're very good at that, you know, but um, I, love, I love the fact that people see you and I think that's really, really important.
1: Well, thank you, boss. Because when we started <laughs> working together, it was on the first ever Strictly tour. I yeah. was up the buff, well and truly pregnant Um, Arlene was in charge at that point. And then after she left the show, you took over as creative director. And I mean, we used to have such a laugh on the tour and it would be me, you and Len and Bruno and and Arlene for the first few years. And we all used to have these blow up beds and on a matinee day, we'd all go and have a kip in the middle of the day together, like old codgers in one zine.
2: I know, but as much as I just sit there and like hold paddles from one to 10, and like slag view people off, you know, it is tiring. I think the tiring part is sort of moving about all the time. I think when you're dancing, you don't get as tired because you've got, you're in that euphoric sort of state and it charges you up, but just sat there for literally two hours you know, looking at the same dance routines and saying the same comments is quite alarming. Although what I loved about the tour is every every day was a new experience. You know, we could we could um, improvise, couldn't we, and work around the script occasionally. <laughs> so I know oh, you cool. love doing that,
1: and I love doing that. But Len used yeah. to really throw Len. It's going no, yeah. you can't. No, no,
2: that's not what, what I say. say. No. <laughs> that's <laughs> not what I say. <laughs> it's very funny. Now, it's a completely different experience, obviously, to the live show, you know, in the fact that you can have a little bit more fun. There is a little bit more leeway for banter. And plus, we're not on that 10 second to 20 second time limitation that we are on the TV. You know, you can, you can have a good old banter, and then something might happen during the day while we're shopping or at lunch. And we can mention that to like the 20,000 yeah. people in the arena. Plus the beauty about people coming to see the arena tour and things like that is that they get to see the full body for the first time, you know, and get to see yeah. their celebrities in real life. And plus, you know, it sounds odd, but when, you know, the show is filmed for television and is live on TV, the cameras don't quite pick up the absolute glitteriness of the costumes. I mean, they are blinding. And it's just wonderful. Yeah, it's wonderful to see with the naked eye. And plus uh, also in tangos and things like that, all the dance routines, you know, you get all these uh, camera angles and you never get to see the feet all the time. So it's sort of nice for, I think, the audience to see the whole body as an experience rather than just what the directors at the BBC want you to see you know whether it being close up or whether it be just a mid shot you know or a two shot uh and that's where i sometimes uh fail you know with people at home because they haven't seen some of the footwork that i've been complaining about you know they go well i didn't see that well that's because that was a mid shot darling (laughs) So you have to remember people at home are only seeing what they're what they're sort of told to see so uh, oh, what is an option, which are the cutaways. But uh, obviously you need close-ups and things like that. But the beauty about the Arena Tour as well is that we have big screens, as you know, you know, they do all the close-ups and all of that. So you can mm. see people's faces clearly, you know. But I thought you were wonderful on that. We've got to have you back, darling.
1: I'd love to come back. Do you know what? I had to stop um, because my son started going to school, and we yeah. took everybody on the road. and And Lisa Riley came in, and she was fantastic. And now I think you've got Stacey. But honestly, yeah. Craig, I had some of my funniest times working with you guys. And <laughs> and 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 the show is. I mean, I, how lucky am I? In 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 the two biggest shows on saturday night and i got to host both of them in one capacity or another with x factor and strictly i've created um some questions for you that i hope are thought provoking that will help us to see the very best of what has been a wildly colorful and wonderful life that you've lived so are you ready for your first one i am Can you identify one event or period in your life that changed everything for you?
2: Yes, one event. Uh, I think that's when I first saw Cats, the musical. That changed my life and changed the destiny of my life forever when I was 17. And it was at that point I went, I cannot believe these people. I saw it in London and I saw these dancers there were actually amazing singers and incredible actors. And I couldn't believe that you could be all three and triple threats, they're called. And from that moment at the end of that performance, I thought that's what I want to do with my life. And then when I went back to Australia, that's exactly what I did do. And I trained and trained and trained to be as good as them. If not better, and uh, I got my first job in West Side Story because of it, and ever since then, I left my career as a hairdresser, I left my career uh, as a sound re- a sound recorders for the um, news team, and a trainee cameraman. I was in TV as well, and left all of that behind and set off and embarked on a journey to become a professional dancer because of that one show, really. And the, I just I saw it and thought that is absolutely incredible, I want to do that. That's the first time I really thought in my life, this is my passion, this is what I want to do. I had been training, obviously as a dancer, but not thinking that I could ever really make it as a professional, and uh, and then when I saw that, it, it really gave me, you know, it put a tiger in me to want to actually achieve it. And the odd thing, I think if you do have a passion and you follow it, you're gonna be good good at it and that's something that I did then for the rest of my life and then of course you know that runs out at sort of 30 to 35 because you become a bit old and the 16 year olds coming up doing higher kicks than you <laughs> and you have to choose something to yeah. do and I chose it called choreography direction you know and then hip replacements and wheelchairs but still
0: <laughs> but um it's, it's,
2: been, <laughs> it's been but it's been great so that was the one thing in my life that uh, I, I had I was at a fork in the road and chose that path. And that led to, you know, a wonderful, wonderful life.
1: Tell me how you came to be in London, because this is one hell of a story.
2: Oh yeah, I was doing a play called Starkers, which was originally called Ladies Night. And then it went back to be, calling, uh, be called Ladies Night, back in Australia in 1988, before you were born darling. And <laughs>
1: no, I was I was definitely alive and kicking.
2: Well, just kicking in your mummy's tummy. Uh but <laughs> I did that play, and in that play I had to strip, and I had to be completely naked in it. It was about it was the full Monty, basically. That's uh <laughs> that's what the full Monty was that. It was uh it was first written as Ladies' Night as a play, then when I went to Australia from New Zealand, it became Starkers. <laughs> Uh, then it became Ladies Night in this country, and then that play turned into the full Monty, and then it became a huge film, and everyone knows the story after that. I played one of the characters in that originally, and I was stripping. So I had to work out in a gym every single day. So I had a great body. I got a call uh on my phone on my answer phone which was back then uh from paris saying craig would you like to come and join um (laughs) the dancers at the famous Lido de paris in paris i thought i could be in paris walking up the champs Elysées. you know um obviously i said yes and then um i had to i was given a costume and they literally took the costume like this they handed it to me with two fingers and it was a g-string and that was it that's all I wore in the show I did um, I did have a big accessory on my head which was a big blue tropical fish but uh nothing else so I was my body was in good neck I was 23 I had a fantastic body and I wanted to show it off and use it so I did um a year contract at the Lido in Paris and then I auditioned for the Danny LaRouge show in this country got that did one month of that at the same time I'd auditioned for Cats, the musical, uh, and then got that. So I left Danny LaRue after a month and went in to join the company of Cats, bizarrely. And then my dream really, literally, had come true. I thought, now where can I go from here? And that's sort of how I got to London, really, through through the Cats audition. And then I went to the beautiful Blackpool to dance there. And then uh, went on to um, <laughs> Edinburgh for three months. How
1: was that? After <laughs> <to> Paris.
2: <laughs> uh, Paris to Blackpool, darling. Well, they've got an Eiffel Tower, yeah. of course, so I felt quite a hope. Uh, <laughs> and, then, uh, and then ended up in a show called Miss Saigon in the West End, so uh, in the original year of that. So it was amazing, absolutely amazing. And then from then, I didn't actually stop work in the West End until I hung my shoes up, really, until I was uh, 30. So very lucky, indeed, but also very uh, privileged and challenged, and also, um, because I don't believe it's all luck. You do have to be in the right place at the right time and available for these gigs. Uh, And so, in in that respect, I was lucky. But, you know, luck is a lot of hard work as well, you know, and that's what I never, ever stopped doing. I was always training, always trying to make myself better, Always, you know, fighting for a better role or a better part or, you know, so I I did work quite a lot. And and also, you know, waited on tables to make up the money because I was only being paid £200 a week, you know, doing cats. And so sometimes I'd have to wait tables, you know, as well on days off just to make ends meet. It's crazy, isn't it?
1: That's amazing, isn't it? That's that one moment, a kind of two-hour experience in your life that went on to change everything and really went yeah. full circle because you ended up in the cast of Cats.
2: I couldn't believe it. At the very same theatre in London, I could the New London Theatre, I could not believe it, not at all. And uh, it was, and I was doing actually Cats and Miss Saigon at the same time. I'd do, uh, I'd do an afternoon, like I'd do a, a matinee of Cats and then come back over the road to Miss Saigon and then play in Miss Saigon. No. And then they were just using me, yeah, using me wherever I want. It was the most bizarre thing. Is when people could sort of swap, you know, uh, swap theatres. It was incredible time, you know. I mean, obviously, uh, there was stuff going on with the IRA at the time as well, and the theatres uh, there were a lot of bomb threats, and we were all in Missagon. There was a bomb threat one one uh, night, and. Um, we were just told to get out of the theater. So everyone, like all the prostitutes in the opening scene were all in bikinis, all out on the street, in Covent Garden. And I was in uh, a military GI outfit with a gun. You know what I mean? It's like, and we're out on the streets, all dressed in our costumes and all these prostitutes in literally bikinis for well, the girls actors they were they're not not real prostitutes though they? they were playing but uh, yes. it was the oldest sight i think i've ever seen and scariest <laughs> as well because there were a lot of bombs going off at that at wow. that time in 1989 1990 91 92 it was just uh, quite frightening in london actually in the theater but uh But sort of exciting as well. Not that I, you know, defend that. But it was one of the funniest things that I've ever seen in the street in my life.
1: I know it sounds ridiculous that you've written three autobiographies, but you kind of warrant it, Craig, because you've got all the stories to fill those pages.
2: Well, there's loads, you know, because obviously the first one is about my life growing up in Australia. And a lot of people don't know I'm Australian because I have, you know, I speak beautifully like the Queen. <laughs> well, like yeah. a Queen, anyway. But, yeah, um, and queen. you know, and then, and then of course, there's Strictly stories on top of that, the theatre stories. I mean, I couldn't, I could keep packing them out. And that's why the novel came about because I had so many stories left over that I wanted to tell that I couldn't fit into 300 pages. I thought, what can I do with these stories? And then, the editor sort of came up with the idea of compiling them, putting them together, but let's make, make it fictional so we can go anywhere we like with the characters. And I thought, oh, that sounds like so much fun. So that's what we did.
1: Small details are big surfaces, tight corners or odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, Are we ready to move on to question number two? Indeed. I think it would be polite of me to say that you are known for giving out tough love. In yeah. fact, an 80-year-old woman once slapped you in the street, didn't she, because of your she perceived rudeness. <laughs>
2: In, New, in Newbury, I remember it well. Wow, <laughs> yeah, I love that. I said, Well, I yeah, thought- she just walked across the square, came across, and just went, Are you Craig Rebel Horwood?" You that Craig Revel Orwood from the TV? I went, Yeah, she just went slap and completely slapped me <laughs> across the face. I said, What oh, but being, being so nasty to the celebrities on Strictly Come Dancing, but then she and then in the second breath, she said, Oh, don't change though, I love you, I love you. It's like. That's not isn't it? I and mean, people slamming their trolleys into the back of my heels in supermarkets. I mean, the beauty about COVID, of course, and the two meter restriction at supermarkets, people can't come up to you or touch you. And selfies have to be at two meters. I love that. I mean, I really that.
1: You are like a tough love human vending machine. Uh, you know, you put a penny in and out it comes. And I just wanted to know when in your own life have you been on the receiving end of tough love and did it help you or harm you?
2: It, uh, I have been, of course. And I always, I always consider it help. Anytime you get criticism, I think it's good to listen to. You can either choose to take it on board and do something about it or it makes you look at yourself i think it's really important if you hand out criticism to be able to take it it's like notes from a director the director is there to give you notes to make your performance better to make you see the character a little bit more clearly to maybe invest in uh what you're investing in which is the acting or the character you know to make better choices for you or upgrade your choices of how you're going to play that yeah. character. I think it's really important. Yeah, I had tough love. I didn't get into a show once that I really wanted to be in, which was La Cache Fault. And they said my arms were a mess and flailing about uncontrollably, and I'd need to sort them out, you know, if I came back for a second audition. And I did, I, t- I, I felt disheartened because I'd worked, you know, all my dancing life towards, you know, a goal and uh, didn't get that. So I went back to class and I concentrated on what they told me, working on controlling these long arms, you know, that seemed to be um, running in abandonment <laughs> to the rest of my body. And so that hurt, but I listened, I corrected it, went back and got the job. So it, it's those sorts of things. I think it is good to listen to people and, Some points are going to be valid, some aren't. And then you take on board that criticism from anybody and make it work. Like I did on Celebrity MasterChef back in 2007. You know, I was given advice on that. If I didn't take the advice, I could choose not to and just continue as a mess or take the advice and say, yeah, they know better, they're right. So that's why I don't get it when people aggress me. You know, when I'm only trying to make their performances better, I'm not trying to make them worse in any way, shape or form on Strictly Come right. Dancing. I think my job is to be there and criticise. You can take that on board and make it a much better experience for yourself if you choose to accept the criticism. If you don't accept the criticism, yes, by all means, stand up yourself and say well that's an artistic choice we made which some people do you know but still uh, an opinion is only an opinion and it's only one person's opinion and as we know everyone has one if you go on twitter everyone's got an opinion
1: darling. Unless you work in this industry you have no concept of how tough caustic and rough it can be at times and I think that people are becoming far more mindful now in the way that um, they treat people, even in moments of rejection. Yeah. But back in the day, I mean, gosh, some of the things that have been said to me would make most people's ears bleed.
2: I know, you you end up having a very tough shell, I've got to be honest. And I think uh, when, I was, when I was learning to dance, I went to a Russian ballet teacher. I mean, she literally had a stick and she would hit you and keep the boys back for an hour for jumps, you know, and it's a killer. And she wouldn't put up with anything less than perfection. And if you weren't applying yourself, you'd be kicked out of the class. And it was the only thing that really made me better was the fact that someone was driving me. Someone was literally there with a whip whipping me. Obviously, you're not allowed to do that anymore. You've got to, you know, be all inclusive. You've got to get round it some other way. But tough love does work. You know, if you can imagine someone that wants to be an Olympic champion and has been getting silvers all their life, and they've got one Olympic left in them and they want gold they want that elusive goal the only way you're going to get it is if you listen to your coach if you if you if you're not listening to the person that's coaching you or the the person coaching you is just saying oh don't worry darling you'll be all right on the night you know you're just feeling a little emotional you know that is not going to work you will not get goal in that way you know and i think certainly sports people always listen to criticism because it helps them number 1 and number 2 it gets them, it makes them win you know so i think it's about listening. It's about, you know, um, sorting, as they say in Australia, the shit from the clay yeah, and, you know, <laughs> moving, and moving forward that way. And I think it's really important to apply those uh, changes to yourself so you do win, so you do get gold. You know, and I think it's uh, – any sports person will tell you they've had really tough coaches, you know, to get to the top. You've had to. Can you imagine anyone, you know, playing football – uh, doing that, you'd be sort of put on a bench, wouldn't you? If, if you're not performing well enough,
1: but you are good like that. I mean, I'm, when you push me out of my comfort zone, I remember sort of thinking I went into sheer panic when you said I've got to dance at Wembley. Yeah, I, I wanted to punch. I wanted to punch <laughs> you in the head and say I cannot do yeah, this. Of course, I I got one, of, and I I got one of those faces. That's what I do. Yeah, no, <laughs> no, you don't understand. I thought we were friends. Why are you doing this to me? <laughs> and I got really panicked. And then you—you yeah. you knew exactly what to do with me. Cut, you know. Then cut to, uh, ladies and gentlemen. This is strictly come dancing. Please welcome your host, Kate Thornton. You were brilliant, but very tough with me at the same time. Of like, well, you can do this, and I know you can do this. So just get on with it. It was—it was. It was yeah. You were quite matter of fact, but you knew I could take that yeah. as a character because I've got the skin of a rhino.
2: And plus, I would—I would make it then very easy, so you didn't know. Uh, For instance, like if you're doing a great big lift like I had to do in Paddington 2, the movie with Hugh Grant, uh, there was uh, this huge big lift. But I didn't really want him to see the whole thing. And he wanted to see the whole thing first. And I said, oh, no, we're just going to look at the first part of it. And because if I had have shown him with all the other dancers the lift, because basically you dive into a sea of men, they flip you up. Onto your feet in the air, and then you dive, roll out of it, and land back on your feet. So he's going through twenty guys, rolling and tumbling through them, and having to land. She but brought. if you show the the whole, yeah. But if you if you show the whole lift altogether, he would have just turned around and said, "There's no way I'm doing that." So I said, "Look, I'm I'm going to do." It's called the hurricane lift.
1: This is you choreographing him, yeah.
2: <clears throat> yeah, I choreographed Paddington 2, the uh, movie. And um, and choreographed the, the final scene with Hugh, which was all singing, all dancing, tap dancing. You know, I had to teach him to tap. But I wanted to do this magnificent sort of amazing lift. And uh, so I coaxed him into it. He did the first part. Then he did the second part. And then we did it in slow motion. But the lift doesn't work unless you do first, second, straight into the third, and flip out. And then... Uh, I said, we're going to sort of go for the whole lift now. He sort of knew in his mind what it was, and his body, I taught him the first two parts of the lift, but I couldn't teach him three and four because uh, you have to go at speed. So I said, we're going to try it. And so he went boom, 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 up, flip, over, landed on his feet, and he went, oh my God, what just happened? I said, you did a hurricane lift, and it was amazing. (laughs) He said, I want to do it again. (laughs) But if I had have shown him, if I had have shown him that lift, he would have gone, oh, my God. And this is what happened with you. It's fear. You think, dance. And then you think, oh, my God, I'm going to have to do a Vincent and Flavia, you know, <laughs> and I'm going to look yeah. terrible. But I mean, I'm there to protect you and make sure that you look incredible. And so you start with something easy. Then you say, well, you prepared to try a little lift here, something easy, you know, and then you coax her. And then. People are begging for more at the end of it. So, I mean, that's sort of what you want. You want the person to own it in the end. And then you came out, you owned that work, darling. You were absolutely snap, snap, snapping. I your loved way. it. Done that. Yeah, it was great. So, um, yeah, there is an approach. And I don't think you need a knife in someone's back. And I don't think you need to threaten them with cutting their money. I don't think, you know, you need to do any of that sort of stuff, you know, to get the best out of people. And I think that's what you learn. And I get obviously misunderstood on a program like Strictly Come Dancing, I think only because I have 10 seconds to say what's wrong with the dance. And and that's tough, you know, so I have to be really quick. I've got to be to the point. You know, if I was coaching them, I could you know, on X Factor, you'd get, co- you'd get coaching. So you've got an opportunity to make them better. But on Strictly, I'm just there literally wearing a judges wig and holding paddles, you know, and and I don't really get time for that. If I was to love, nurture, embrace, then I could show my true self, like I did in Australia when the judges had to, uh, we had to do that once where we had to put together a group routine. And we had uh, three celebrities and three pro dancers. And then I had to star in it myself. And this is a challenge between all the judges. And then we judge each other, which was a lot of fun. But um, everyone was very competitive, but we had to get up. We had to put ourselves in the professional dancer's place and be in the the dance routine and choreograph it and come up with all the concepts and perform it live on the show. And then you're not only judged I by the should do that judges, here. Course, oh, yeah, I know. I think they should. It'd be hilarious.
0: <laughs> but Doesn't it's good it? fun.
2: But yeah, I absolutely loved it. So um, I think that was sort of good because people, you know, your, your money is, is seriously where your mouth is. And I think that's really important. And that's why I don't take myself so seriously because I will get up and make an idiot of myself. I mean, I, I literally dragged Anne Whitacombe around the dance floor on tour <laughs> for literally two months, Sally. We did 40 shows together. And then that consequently led to me doing two years of Panto with Anne Whitacombe, really doing the same lift every day and it was like really great, two shows a day. So, you know, I'll put, I don't mind what people say about me, I just get up and do it, hopefully they enjoy it.
1: I wanted to talk to you about your relationship with your body because you are prolific in the way that you've talked about your anxieties, your lack of confidence, which for a man was, was quite groundbreaking when you started that conversation. And as the mother of a body-conscious 12-year-old, I thank you because you've normalized it in so many ways. And yeah. I just wondered, where, how has your relationship with your body changed? And where are you at with it now?
2: I uh, used to judge myself alongside people. When you're dancing... You dance in front of mirrors all day, learning routines, oh. and you're constantly comparing yourself to the next person. If you're not happy with your body type or shape, it makes it difficult. And I had uh, body dysmorphia. I think. Well, I definitely know I did because I became anorexic, and I wasn't eating properly because I was thinking I was fat. But of course, uh, my hips were bigger than most boys' hips, and I was always comparing myself to them. You know, and I had broad shoulders, narrow waist, but I had bigger hips. I felt my hips were like two inches too big, an inch either side, just too big, you know, to have that uh, V shape. And I was constantly comparing myself to other people. And that was my biggest error. And it led to me not eating properly. It led to me... Uh, just having lettuce leaves for two weeks which was ridiculous Uh, it led to me you know skipping loads of meals or being scared to eat in case I put any weight on Uh, only because I was comparing comparing myself to shorter different men uh, different body types and that's crazy some people have more muscle mass than others naturally and I was one of the dancers that had uh, a higher body fat percentage uh, to the point where I I did have to watch what I ate, but I was eating the I wasn't eating at all. And what I needed to do was eat protein and work out and do weights and build the muscle up. Of course, I wasn't I didn't know about that at the time. And it wasn't until I became uh, a gym instructor that I learned all about nutrition. And that was when I had to do that play. I had to learn about nutrition because I had to then, you know, work on my body and make it better than it was and make the best of what you have, you know, and be happy actually with what you have and use your own body shape as the template for that. I I was yeah. always guilty of just comparing myself. Why can't I be, look like him? Why can't I have pecs like him? Why can't I have big biceps like him? And, you know, obviously the reason is Craig, you're a foot longer in every direction than that person you're stood next to there's the problem <laughs> you know longer muscles need different types of workout you know and it's it, it is like that you know and as soon as you stop comparing yourself and start becoming yourself you can live a much more normal life and it took me it took me ages to learn that and that seriously was something that was uh, wrong and then of course when i gave up dance i kept eating the same amount as I was eating while I was dancing and of course I started to put on the weight. And then, um, and then I went on to have, um, you know, like man boobs that I just couldn't stand anymore. So I had them removed because there was um, a breast tissue under that I could never get rid of no matter what, you know, and this happens to a lot of men and they won't talk about it. Uh, and that's what it's technically called, and it's mm-hmm. breast tissue underneath the uh, nipple. And there's no amount of muscle will make that go away. So I had to have that surgically removed, and then and I was very. How happy.
1: was that, Craig? How was what, what's okay. that procedure? Because so many men do str- yeah. struggle with that, and you're right; they don't talk about it.
2: No, and they try and hide it with, you know, bigger mm. T-shirts or they won't wear, they'll always wear a jacket. They won't take their, they won't go topless on the beach because they're worried about having man boobs. And it is a thing, mm. you know, and people, and it's a, it's horrific when men aren't supposed to have them, you know, but yeah. it is a natural thing, mind you. But it, you can deal with it. You can deal with it uh, through exercise, but that won't help it if you've got going you know, because it is breast tissue that you have to get rid of. Uh, but the procedure is actually quite a simple one. They just cut around the nipple and take out the breast tissue and um, do a bit of liposuction around that area as well and then sew mm. you back together. Yeah, it's painful. It's like being punched in the chest. Uh you know, like 500 times. So it is, you can't lift anything up for a couple of weeks. But um, just taking the bandages off and, you know, I I just started crying in the mirror because it was the first time really that I had a flat chest. (laughs) You know, I I was so used to always having that bit of fat around my pecs. And um, I mean, when I stopped dancing, it just turned even worse. I mean, I used to go to extremes and wear braces underneath my t-shirts, you know, just to hold it all down. It was like crazy. And then I went to see a surgeon and they said, Oh no, that's easy to get rid of. And if men know about that sort of thing, I think it's really important that they can change their lives because it's, it gives you a sense of freedom. Like my nose job did. I had that done when I was 18 you know, and um, it was the best thing that ever uh, happened to me. Not was only cosmetic, which is ridiculous. But um, up until that age, I always thought I had a fish face, and I hated my big old nose.
1: So those procedures, you a they 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 sound to me like they they freed you up. They they made you look at yourself with new eyes and and a newfound love. Is that right?
2: They made me feel confident, and it uh, gave me a new lease of life. I have got to be honest. I just felt uh invincible and i think that's really important i just went i was free of something baggage <laughs> i mean literally and uh you know stuff that had been disturbing me all my life you know it was just one thing less to think about and confidence is everything i just didn't have it when i felt like i had that body you know and but i think Okay, as you get older, you tend to accept yourself and celebrate actually who you are. Now, if I was strong enough back then to just accept that, I'd be strong enough then to whip my top off and not worry about what people think. But for men, it's really, really difficult. And I understand exactly what um, men that have that condition are going through. And, you know, the beauty is it can be rectified. And it does, I don't know, it, it makes you love yourself so you're free to love others. I think that's the point I'm making.
1: It's something we all go through if you have like bad skin as a teenager, where you can all relate to that, wanting to not, not make eye contact with somebody, wanting to hide yourself away, the bigger the clothes, the baggier the clothes. The, and, and actually it's no way to live, is it? And if there is a solution out there that will give you the confidence mentally to feel better about yourself, then why not? As long as you're not harming yourself, then more power to you, surely.
2: Yeah, as long as you're not getting into debt or, you know, robbing, you know, a store to do it, I think, you know, I think, you know, it can be done and you can, you know, it's no problem to rely on the kindness of strangers in that way as well. You know, you just have to, I think, be honest with yourself and say, why do you want it done? How will it make you feel? And, is it, will it make, improve your life? You know, I think that's the important thing. And it's certainly improved mine. I felt really confident. I, could, I felt like I could wear, you know, anything I liked. And, you know, I'm not talking about being ripped. I'm not talking about anything fake. I'm just talking about getting, losing a problem that is a, a able, that you're able to do. You know, I mean, obviously when I had both my hips replaced, that was causing me pain. I couldn't walk. That was like a necessary thing that had to be done, you know. Uh, but a long time ago, I remember my, my grandmother, she had to live with the pain all of her life. But nowadays, mm. you don't have to. And plus, you can get, yeah. you know, hip replacements on the NHS as well because it's affecting your life. It's affecting how, you know, people when they're in pain all the time are a little, lot more grumpy and a lot more... Uh, short-tempered and that can lead to other problems within your relationship with your family with friends you know and and hamper you at work so I think it's really important to find out what it is you know because it could be a deep deeper rooted problem than just the outward you know and I think Uh, solving the outward helped solve all the stuff, you know, that I felt inside for all those years. And it was freeing and the most amazing experience. You know, I just couldn't wait to put something tight on and go, Look, there's nothing there. I can't do any juggling anymore. (laughs) um, (laughs) And by that, I mean cupping my chest. And that used to be my party trick, you know, but um, as much as I used to use it (laughs) and have fun with my, you know, with my breasts, my man, my man boobs, because I did have fun with them, uh, I decided that actually this can be rectified. And if I just go on a high-protein, you know, low-carb diet and start working out and get rid, of the, get rid of the problem, then I will love myself more. And I did. And it was great. And I've never felt better. And I say, if you've got it, you got it, flaunt it. You know, when I do, like in drag, I've got back fat and I don't care. I'll still wear something. I really don't care. I go, yeah, look at it. Isn't that gorgeous? And shake it about, you know, and people can say what they think. <laughs> they can say whatever they like about it, but I'm still up there doing it, having a laugh. And I am a woman of a certain age, that's face
1: it. Thank you so much for listening to the first of our three something from the ballroom specials. Join me again next Tuesday when I'll be revisiting another Strictly Legends story. And don't forget to pop back this Friday when I'll be in conversation with a brand new guest. I'll see you then. White Wine Question Time is a Stack production and part of the ACAST Creator Network.